We're in business to save the planet, and we use making clothes to do that. For over 45 years, Patagonia has committed to taking responsibility for their impact on the environment by pioneering sustainable practices and inspiring other businesses to do the same. The cure for depression is action. Every one of us has to step up and do what you can according to what your resources are. Patagonia, in business to save our home planet. Join us. You're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries, a production of Duct Tape Thin Beer, with additional support from Kuat Racks, Because You Love Your Bike, and Kicking Horse Coffee. Wake up and kick ass. Last month, my son Tep and I, we were skiing in Tahoe. It was the remnants of a powder day, so it was still soft, but everything was starting to form up into moguls, especially off the groomers. I would never go so far as to say I'm a snob about what I ride because snowboarding, sliding across snow, it brings a smile to my face. But I am acutely aware that there is a difference between dropping in on 2,000 feet of untracked powder and riding moguls on a man-made snow base. Mostly, I feel it in my body, because for the sake of the ankle I've broken twice, the hip that now seems to be sympathetically affected by that twice-broken ankle, and my back, I try my best to ride the uninterrupted powder fields. It's just better for the body, period. And more fun. But anyway, so we're riding along, and Tep says to me, Dad, let's go there! He turns from the main run, stops turning, and he points it for the nearest mogul, hits it head-on, and jumps right into the heart of the bumps below. And my old knees, they cringed. I think I might have even said, really, underneath my breath? I should know better. But there's a more powerful need than the preservation of my body, and that's to stay connected to Tep and my other son, Wiley, not to live vicariously, but to see and experience everything I can while I'm still cool, while I'm still daddy and not dad, before they become teenagers and adults and find their own paths. And right now, the outdoors is a great way of finding that connection. Instead of vicariously watching from the sidelines, we get to live it together. And so, sitting there, watching him air into a mogul field, I shrugged, smiled, pointed it, and ollied off the top mogul through a simple toe-side grab and then nearly exploded in the mogul field below. What am I saving my body for anyway? Tep and Wiley are six and two. We've introduced them to the things we love because we believe in the positive impact of those activities to people of any age. Also, because it's a good way for us to connect as a family. And right now that's easy because, well, the kids live with us and they rely on us for all their basic needs. But it won't always be that way. And sometimes that's like a little bit hard to stomach as a parent. The older they get, the more things will compete for their attention. I hope some activity will capture their imagination and turn into a passion because passion is the best vehicle for exploring this life. I know they may not fall in love with the same things I did, and that is totally cool. At some point, it will probably take more effort on my part to stay connected with my boys. I won't just be able to load them up in a car and take them out to do the things that Becca and I love. I may have to step back, look at what they actually are drawn to, and try to find a way to connect over that or at least learn a little bit about it 
and probably eat some humble pie. And I imagine I will have to approach it with a wry smile, a little shrug, and a point it for the metaphorical mogul and launch into what they're interested in. Today we have a story from David Altschul about his search for ways to stay connected to his daughter, Jen. Jen, of course, is the producer here at The Diaries. She ski patrolled and rock climbed competitively. Those are the things she learned to do on her own versus things David taught her. So how does a 72-year-old father stay connected to his diary-producing, rock-climbing, pow-skiing daughter by jumping right in? I'm Fitz Cahal, and you're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. rolling? We're rolling. So September 2017, I'm at the base of Beacon Rock with my daughter Jen, and I'm looking at an imposing wall of basalt that rises about 200 feet straight up, about a third of the distance to the top. It's not the route that we're about to climb. It's way too hard for me, but it dawns on me with a little jolt that That's probably the route we came down in the middle of the night 10 years ago, what I refer to as the escape from Beacon Rock. I have a very clear memory of the moment we knew we weren't going to finish the climb. It's about 10.30 in the evening. It was not 10.30 in the evening. There's no way. It wasn't even like quite dark out yet. How was it? It was like August. The daylight wasn't gone till like 9.30. There's no way it was 10.30. Whatever. It was late. Ted came down from trying the sixth or seventh pitch. Ted was Jen's then boyfriend, a sweet, well-intentioned 20-something. And I remember it well because in my mind, he looked white as a sheet, which is really ironic for two reasons. One is I hate using cliches like white as a sheet, but... That's how I remember it. And two is, by the time he came down, it was too dark for me to see his face. He was really clear that we couldn't go any further, even though we were theoretically within one rope length of the Park Service Trail, which provides a very easy walk-off. He described scrambling around in the fading light, trying to find the route, and wandering instead onto a field of big, unstable slabs of loose rock. He said we'd have to bail. That sentence makes it sound easy. And maybe to Jen and Ted, it seemed that way, but not to me. The ascent had taken a lot out of me. I'd been counting on one last pitch and an easy walk down, even if it was dark. But I wasn't skilled enough to find the route myself. So if Jen and Ted said we had to bail, we had to bail. Neither Jen nor Ted had ever been on Beacon Rock before. Ted did have a scrap of paper in his pocket with a photocopy of the climbing guide. And we did have a small flashlight and two headlamps, although only one of the headlamps worked. So, what were we doing halfway up Beacon Rock in the first place? Jen was not particularly happy through most of her teenage years. And rock climbing provided an important anchor in an otherwise turbulent adolescence. I started climbing when she did in an effort to stay connected with my daughter. During those years, I did a little dad climbing at the gym and on the crags around Portland. 
but I never saw myself as a real climber, and at my age, I didn't ever expect to become one. Throughout most of my youth, I had fantasized about being more of an adventurer than I turned out to be. And after a lifetime spent playing things a little safer than I would have liked, I had no serious outdoor credentials beyond a little recreational skiing. Jen made it through high school and got accepted by some good colleges, but I think she was looking for a level of autonomy and self-knowledge that college only pretends to provide. She chose instead to get serious about her climbing, and she set out on an extended road trip. The most terrifying moment in my life was the morning in March when I got up before dawn to send my 18-year-old daughter off into the darkness her Volvo station wagon loaded with climbing and camping gear, a 50-state road atlas on the seat beside her. I didn't know that was the scariest moment of your life. Without question. If you can imagine having a child and raising the child through 18 or 19 years, and then just sending them off into the darkness with a whole continent and no plan. Um, I don't know. I did inherit from my mother, from your grandmother, a kind of optimism which uh, I'm sure your mom would reclassify as denial, but my mother didn't expect things to turn out badly. And by and large, I didn't expect things to turn out badly. But I wasn't so thoroughly convinced of it that there wasn't part of my brain saying, ah! <laughs> she stopped first at Red Rocks outside Las Vegas, went as far south as Joshua Tree, met Ted and his friends at Indian Creek in southern Utah. They made their way east to the New River Gorge in West Virginia and back west through Colorado and north as far as Squamish in British Columbia. I stayed in Portland with my phone and my own copy of the Road Atlas and did my best to stay connected, discussing routes and rock formations and techniques that I never expected to experience for myself. In fact, as I supported Jen in pursuing her dreams, I knew deep down I was vicariously living out my own. I tried to be cool about it to keep my own fantasies and adventures out of sight because I didn't want to impose my own needs and desires onto her. You did a good job. I had no idea. Well, I'm relieved to hear it because you have lived out a lot of the experience of adventure that I fantasized about. And uh, it's very satisfying. I mean, I would have liked to do it in my own life, <laughs> you know, but, but you did it. I tried to be cool about it. Then in early August, when Jed and her merry band of climbers were passing through Portland, someone mentioned Beacon Rock, and I raised my hand. For Jen and Ted, it might just be a fun diversion. For me, it was a way to stay connected literally connected, tied to my free-range daughter by a length of 10-millimeter climbing rope, and connected to my own dream of being an adventurer. And that was how I found myself a few days later on a ledge high above the Columbia River in the dark. Jen and Ted, after consulting their scrap of paper, had decided on a plan for rappelling back down. 
it made sense to move to where we could wrap straight down the sheer vertical face rather than trying to reverse the zigzaggy route we had climbed up. Before we started, however, I had a call to make. Paula, my wife and Jen's mother, would have been expecting us home some time ago. If I didn't check in, she'd worry, and if she knew the situation we were in, the worry would be tinged with significant disapproval. She would not have thought a man my age, with climbing skills as limited as my own, should have joined this expedition at all. The one thing working in my favor is that she didn't know enough about climbing to ask the questions that would reveal just how much jeopardy we were actually in. I don't know that you can say we were in that much jeopardy. Like, we were sitting on a ledge attached to a tree. If we had stayed on that ledge all night attached to a tree, which we could have done, then we wouldn't have been in jeopardy. But I, I just, like, this whole jeopardy thing seems a little overblown. Um, if you had called me on your cell phone and said, no problem, Dad, here's the situation, if I were a proactive, responsible parent, I would have called search and rescue. And the search and rescue people would not have said, no problem, Dad, let them rappel back down. The search and rescue people would have said, tell them to sit there. And in the morning, they probably won't even need us. I think that's what they would have said. Yeah. I wouldn't call you if I was on a ledge in the dark. Anyway, yeah. carry on. She wouldn't know the question to ask that would reveal just how much jeopardy we were actually in. I made the call brief, tried to sound casual, told her we were running a little late and not to wait up for us. For the next hour or so, we worked our way down, moving slowly from ledge to ledge, leaving as little gear as possible at each anchor. By midnight, we were resting on a big ledge, which, if Ted and Jen had correctly interpreted their scrap of paper, was just above the vertical wall that defined the lower part of Beacon Rock. We had two 70-meter ropes, and Ted figured that if we tied them together, we could make it to the ground in one long rappel. Being on the ledge was a little surreal. I didn't feel exposed. I felt cozy. That feeling was amplified by the trees that lined the ledge, so I had to deliberately remind myself that the coziness was dangerous. Just past those trees was not a forest of other trees. We selected one of the trees as a rappel anchor, and Ted started backing down the rounded face so that within 20 or 30 feet he was out of sight and soon out of earshot. I waited what seemed like too long and finally asked Jen how I was supposed to know when Ted had made it to the ground. She said, pull on the rope. If I could move it, he was off rappel. There was a fair amount of rope drag because of the rounded section at the top of the pitch, but with some effort I was able to move the rope. So I clipped in my own rappel device and started down. Once again, the world I experienced was limited to the cool night air and the cozy circle of light from the flashlight I was holding in my teeth. That and the expectation that I would soon be on the ground made the first part of the rappel quite pleasant. But when I got within earshot of Ted and began to see the light from his headlamp, the cozy feeling drained away. The good news was that he had located two very solid bolts the bad news was that we were nowhere near the ground, and the ledge for this particular anchor consisted of a horizontal imperfection in the rock, so narrow that if you tried to balance a quarter on it, the coin would tumble off and fall the entire 100 feet to the rocks below. I was pretty exhausted, but there was nothing for me to do but clip into those same two bolts and find my toeholds on the same ledge. 
Pretty soon, Jen came sailing through the dark toward our decidedly uncozy gathering place. Once she was clipped in as well, we had to pull the ropes to set up the final rappel. So you remember the rounded part at the top of the pitch. There was so much rope drag that we couldn't budge the rope. Okay, so you got the scene. There's three bodies, two young and one rather old, attached to the middle of a wall of rock, struggling with all their combined strength to free a stuck rope in the small hours of the morning. That's why it was such a jolt to hear the ringer of my phone explode in my pocket. Paula. She hadn't gone to bed at all, and now she wasn't just snippy, she was pissed. Not a good time to talk, I said, with all the calm confidence I could muster. How close are you, she wanted to know. On our way, I answered, not exactly lying. I was sure you were going to get stuck up there, my wife noted sourly. Climbing is for young people. Go back to sleep, I told her. Goodbye. The three of us took a collective breath. We arranged ourselves once more to get the full weight of all three bodies on one rope, and it budged. On the ground, Jen would say it was no big deal. We started late, we got off route, we bailed. Jen and Ted could write it off as a painless misadventure. Every serious climber has suffered similar setbacks. Problem is, I wasn't a serious climber. I was over 60 years old. As a father, the failed climb was a great bonding experience with my daughter. But as a climber, it was a near disaster. Jen and Ted eventually went their separate ways. I left climbing behind and imagined that I was aging gracefully while continuing to ski a few days a year. But I continued to tell the story of Escape from Beacon Rock, and still working every angle to stay connected with my daughter, I started to fantasize about turning that story into an episode of the diaries. Only problem was the ending. It always seemed a little anticlimactic, which I guess was Jen's problem with the story from the beginning. Then, about two years ago, I went in for the physical you're supposed to get when you turn 70. Although my health was pretty good, my doctor suggested that I would age more gracefully from a medical point of view if I lost some weight and added some muscle. He prescribed less bread and more alcohol, and he referred me to a personal trainer. A year in, my weight had dropped considerably, and I was stronger than I ever expected to be again. And that's when it began to dawn on me that I might be able to climb after all. And I thought, hmm, I'll go back and climb Beacon Rock. I'll train. I'll do it right this time. I could connect with my daughter not just by writing about a past failed climb, but by actually getting out there and doing the southeast corner together. I had no expectation of lead climbing or route finding or building anchors, but this time I intended to be more than just a tourist. This time I hoped to be a real climber. Hey, Pops, where are we? Southeast corner of Beacon Rock. Uh, when was the last time you were up here? Uh, I believe it was almost exactly 10 years ago. If I had my glasses on, I could probably spot the two bolts that we were hanging from it on that night when your mother called me. Do you have more confidence in this excursion? I have complete confidence in this excursion. I think that whether I can actually climb it or whether you guys have to haul me up it, 
that remains to be seen. What's the like emotion right now? I would say anticipation. I can feel my pulse getting faster and I can feel a rational executive part of my brain reminding me to keep breathing. Yeah. Let's climb a rock. So now it's 2017. I'm back at Beacon Rock with Jen, as well as Connor, who is a much better climber and a far superior boyfriend than Ted could ever have been a decade ago. To my right is a long, steep gully, the first of our seven pitches. It doesn't look too hard, but I remember the first couple of pitches from 10 years ago as harder than they looked, with me occasionally lunging for holds, counting on a tightly cinched up top rope to help me through moves that were right at the bleeding edge of my dad climbing capability. This time though, I am better prepared. I'm in better shape. I've trained in the climbing gym for the past three months, and I engaged Molly, Jen's climbing coach from all those years ago, to help me master technique in a way I hadn't even considered before. I understand that at my age there might be a limit to how much stronger I can get, but I figured that if I actually knew what I was supposed to be doing with my feet and my hands, I might be able to use my brain to compensate for some of what my muscles couldn't do on their own. Connor yells down, on belay! Wait, we're already at that part of the story? I feel like you're selling yourself a little short, Pops. You left out the part where, like, you actually found a climbing gym within walking distance of your office yeah. so that you could go and boulder like three times a week on yeah. your lunch breaks or something. And you got so excited about it that your much younger coworker decided yeah. that he was going to take up climbing so that he could go climbing with you. It wasn't just like sort of a casual gym membership. I think you were climbing more than I was. Well, that's possible. Okay, anyway. Yeah. Connor yells down, on belay, and I start to climb. But right from the beginning, I feel something is different. I can tell that Jen is impressed. I think she was expecting I would need a lot more information, advice, and encouragement than I do. And despite my preparation, I was expecting that I would need that kind of help from her too. I clip into the anchor at the top of pitch one, feeling distinctly more optimistic. You didn't seem to struggle at all on that first pitch. No, it didn't feel like a struggle. It felt like right at the level that I can work it out. All my climbing 10 years ago was there was much more franticness to it. If I was at a particular place for too long, I would grab for something. Whether I was in a position to grab for anything or not. And uh, this time, although I think I climbed faster, I didn't feel rushed at any point to move just because it was time to move. That was the pitch that you were worried about, right? Well, I was worried about, I am still worried, because we have a traverse to do, and I'm worried about the pendulum effect. Mm-hmm. Anything else you'd like to say? It's just an amazing view. I mean, it's right in the middle of the gorge, and since we're looking pretty much straight south, it's got all the sparklies on the water. It's pretty spectacular. I looked at the climbing guide online and uh, it did describe pitch two as a traverse. The kind of thing that you would hike pretty casually, except of course that if you slipped on that loose rock, you'd fall 100 feet. But when I watched Connor go across 
First of all, I could see that it was really less of a sketchy hike and more of an easy climb that happened to be going sideways instead of up. In any case, soon all three of us are across the traverse on a ledge looking up at pitch three, which is the real crux of the climb. Now it's coming back to me. This was the pitch that I floundered on 10 years ago. I remember lunging for holds. I remember resting in my harness while I figured things out. I remember grabbing on draws occasionally when I couldn't find a real hold and ultimately flopping over the top of the final ledge like a walrus heaving itself out of a cold ocean in a warm sweat. <laughs> but this time really is different. When I mantle onto the ledge, it dawns on me for the first time in my life, I feel like a real climber. At age 72, my long charade is over. having a nice time. Oh, great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm having a great time. Good. What do you think of those last few pitches? <sighs> I, to me, it feels like real climbing. And uh, there were definitely spots where I had to think. I had to work to get my feet in a position where I could think without running out of <laughs> muscle bandwidth before I could figure out what to do. But I was able to work it out so that I wasn't doing any desperation. It seems like it's easier than you remember. I'm climbing way better than I remember. Are you pretty confident we're going to make it to the top? I've been trying not to jinx this with any expectations. I would be sad if we had to rappel all the way down because that sounds like a tremendous amount of work from this point. <laughs> but it, it sure feels like we're going to make it to the top. Okay. The remaining pitches are not quite as difficult as pitch three, but each one of them has at least a couple of moves that take some serious concentration, strength, and technique. At this stage, the hardest part is the mental discipline. The more tired I get, the more I feel an impulse to lunge for holds in order to keep moving. I remind myself to breathe and to focus on the rock right in front of me. Where, uh, where are we? Oh, we are at the very top of Beacon Rock. Uh, feels very satisfying in a way that I'm not sure I could explain. Congratulations, perhaps. Thanks, sweetheart. Shall we go down? Yeah. So now I'm a climber, just like my daughter. Not as good, not as experienced, not as many days on the rock ahead of me, but still. Wait, that's the end? That's how it ends. What about the phone call when you told me that you had been thinking that you might want to lead climb? I think that may be a bridge too far for this story, because um, wow. I climbed Beacon Rock clean, and it occurred to me that 
Some of those pitches were easy enough that I could imagine leading them. I mean, there'd be a lot of training involved, but there's something in the back of my head that says that there's a different quality to the experience when you're leading. So I don't know, I'm still a little uncomfortable with putting that out there publicly. Not because I'm embarrassed about it, but because I'd sort of like to hold it close to see if there's actually something there. And I'm not ready to say that learning to lead climb is a project, if only because I don't think I'm ready for your mother to learn about that. <laughs> um, any final words? I look back on that day and I feel a great deal of satisfaction. I feel alive. I feel strong. I feel healthy. I feel connected in a lot of different ways. It was sweet. Take a deep breath, baby. Jump on in. Let that dirty water cover up your skin. this The Diaries is made possible by the good people at Patagonia who have been in the fight to protect public lands for almost 30 years. Now, our wild places are facing unprecedented threats, and Patagonia wants to make it as easy as possible to speak up for our special places. Visit patagonia.com slash protect-public-lands.html to take action. Additional support comes from Kuat Racks, the little company who believed they could build a better bike rack. Their racks look good, they're sturdy, and they're easy to use. Check out their lineup at kuatracks.com. And support comes from Vossen, the Virginia-based brewing company who wants to become one of the most sustainable breweries in the U.S., to that end, Vossen has partnered with local farmers and energy producers to ensure a sustainable supply chain. To learn more, visit vossenbrewing.com, or if you're in the Richmond area, visit their beautiful new tap room. You, our audience, truly keep the diaries thriving. To pledge your support, go to our website, dirtbagdiaries.com, and click the button in the upper right-hand corner. You can still get a download of our theme song ringtone, which is pretty rad. Thank you so much to everyone who has contributed already. Thank you, Dad, for telling your story. You finally made it onto the Dirtbag Diaries. Congratulations. And nice job with that rock, too. Music today from MC Cullah, Jason Tyler Burton, Little Glass Men, and Vienna Ditto. The tracks are courtesy of Free Music Archive and with permission from the artists themselves. Jacob Bain and Nice Koto composed our theme song. You can find links to the artists at our website. This episode was produced by me, Jen Alchel, with editing help from Becca and Fitz Cahal. You've been listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in. Oh, baby, let's Oh, baby, that's your need It carried away Oh, until we learn to sleep